Welcome back to another Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Parat. Today's topic is end-of-life care. I must die and you must die. And maybe that's why so many of us care about end-of-life topics. Because of all the conditions you can listen to a podcast about, this is the only sure condition you will have, I will have, and our children will have. So we should have a strong desire to improve our processes for managing it. And some say that the topic is too gloomy to think about, and I'm amazed people go through life that way. Do these people really not want to be educated about other gloomy topics like wars, taxes, crime, and poverty? Even if some don't have a slight interest in learning about provocative topics, it doesn't ameliorate the issues by purposefully aspiring to ignorance. But perhaps more important is that accepting death is one of the features of who we all are that makes life so precious. I mean, isn't it true that so much of the grief of death is that we won't have that being around to save our life with? Another cause of grief is witnessing the physical and emotional suffering many experience during the dying process. Can we somehow quantify that suffering? And we actually do have data showing that happens. And if you look at the New England Journal of Medicine from June 26, 1996, there was a $28 million study funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation where they found that 50% of the conscious patients who die in the hospital have moderate to severe pain at least half of the time they're in the hospital. And if you pull that article, there's another quote stating, quote, a substantial portion of gravely ill hospitalized patients continue to receive inadequate pain relief and suffer from a burdensome and prolonged process of dying characterized by the use of invasive medical technology. And that's the end of the quote. So this is something we should be able to improve on as a society. But the question is, why is this suffering happening, and how is it affecting society beyond the individual suffering? Jane Gross, a writer for the New York Times, wrote an article for that paper on May 5th, 2008, explaining, and I'm quoting her, many in their 80s and 90s and their boomer children want to pull out all the stops to stay alive, and doctors get paid for doing a procedure, not discussing whether it should be done. The costliest patients, the elderly with chronic illnesses, are the only group with universal health coverage under Medicare, leading to huge federal expenditures that experts agree are unsustaining as boomers age. And that's the end of the quote. So how do we deal with that? And I have hesitated to do this podcast for a while. It's because end-of-life care opinions are so intertwined with religion and politics, and there is no way to keep from offending certain friends, family, and some patients when you discuss this stuff. And I love my family, friends, and patients, even the ones who disagree with me. And I also respect what you have to say when I know it's coming from a good, but nevertheless different place from my viewpoint. Thomas Jefferson said, I never consider a difference of opinion in politics, in religion, in philosophy as cause for withdrawing from a friend. Yet I will lose some listeners today and no doubt get emails from those who disagree with my logic, but I think I still owe it to the future dying, which is everyone, 
to discuss these topics. I often am asked the question if I believe rationing care to the terminally ill is a good idea. I also ask myself that question a lot. Before I answer that question, let me answer a very different separate question as to whether or not I myself have actually rationed care against a patient or family's will. In less than a handful of times, and I only do that with full disclosure about what I am doing to the patient and family. It really only arises less than once every couple years in my own practice that a situation is so futile and the family is so unrealistic that measures requiring ethics committees, legal avenues, administrators, and other pathways that need to be utilized to stop what I consider insanity. And often there are underlying circumstances that are driving the insanity, such as one situation where a wife eventually admitted to me that she refused to withdraw care so she could keep collecting her husband's VA pension. But I know others of you face these futility issues a lot more frequently than the population I deal with, and end-of-life issues without question are so culturally based, and therefore will vary a lot from region to region, even within a state. But I think the topic of futility, while a very important subtopic in end-of-life care, needs to be addressed at a separate time, and isn't the most common circumstance underlying most deaths, though it is an important topic maybe we'll get back to at some point. But... There is a fairly common reason I do ration care. That's when the patient and family actually asks me to stop aggressive life-sustaining care and focus on comfort. Therefore, at this point in history, it is up to an American patient to decide how much and what type of care individuals want at the end of life. And yes, it is without question that some people never will consider a palliative approach. Winston Churchill said, if you are traveling through hell, keep going. And I think that attitude is great in many terrible situations. And I really do admire people that have been able to prosper through wars, chronic illness, concentration camps, and abusive pasts. But I do personally feel that if it is a terminal illness situation with very limited time, even utilizing aggressive medical care, that it makes little sense to purposefully suffer. If you are a patient getting care from me, as I suspect is also the case with most physicians, I will give you the choices and then you have the autonomy to decide how you want to be treated or not be treated. The only very rare exception is when I think the care I am being asked to provide is both futile and will cause unnecessary harm. And sometimes I have requested that the patient or family change doctors or hospitals if they want to follow that path. But that again is very rare in my own practice. Now, I will come back and address the question if I think it would be wise for the United States to ration health care at the end of life. I do think it's a smart idea with an important caveat. I am only for rationing when it saves the government money in situations in which the benefits of expensive care either don't exist or are a very limited benefit at a very high cost. 
but I am all for the rights of citizens to be able to purchase any type of care they want. So I don't want to ration your money, just everybody else's money. And let me try and justify that statement. It always surprises me that many who don't want rationing are the same people that often consider themselves fiscal conservatives. It confuses me because I really do consider myself a fiscal conservative that thinks we should rarely spend what we don't have. Yet, like many who understand the issue, I have this knowledge that we as a society pay less into Medicare than we end up using. We spend more Medicare dollars than we pay by taxes into the system. When people say, I paid for my Medicare, um, sorry, you paid for part of your Medicare. You didn't pay for all of it. The expenditures exceed the taxes we pay, and that is unsustainable. And ironically, those that don't want to ration the care we simply are not funding adequately often are the same folks who complain that everyone feels so entitled in this society and that we shouldn't raise taxes to fund the care they feel is so important not to ration. If it is suggested, as it was a few years ago, that a simple discussion about advanced directives and code status should be mandatory law, it's been literally called a death panel, and so it had to be dropped from the Affordable Care Act. Why? Because that term, death panel, that was such a misleading term, ripped through talk radio and the media and became the single most feared part of the Affordable Care Act for a moment in time. This is important because, and I will quote the Archives of Internal Medicine from September 8, 2008, 5% of Medicare enrollees with the most serious illness account for over 43% of Medicare expenditures. Approximately 60% of total Medicare health expenditures are for hospital care. Hospital palliative care consultation teams are associated with significant hospital cost savings. And that's the end of the quote. When you bring up rationing care for certain extraordinarily expensive treatments, that ultimately have very minimal benefit in avoiding the one single fate all humans share, which is to die, people get very emotional about that. Those same people, and I happen to know many of these folks in Colorado Springs, are not nearly as bothered by a young, part-time, employed diabetic patient that can't afford health care that really is needed to keep her in the workforce. Adding a law requiring discussion about code status for a very sick patient is somehow the government wanting to kill its citizens in the mind of many who called that a death panel, even though that sick patient can choose to be a full resuscitation and you are just offering the choice. But a young diabetic mother just trying to extend her life by decades so she can be around to raise her children is selfish entitlement? if the government pays for her care? Hmm, I just don't follow that logic. I don't have much patience for party politics and think anybody that would vote strictly down a party line instead of thinking for themselves or just going off of what a talk radio guy says is a fool. But when it comes to healthcare in America, we have to acknowledge that there is a group that believes the sanctity of life only extends to citizens when you are a fetus or when you are at death's doorstep. 
and that no care for millions of adults somehow is just not that emotional of an issue for them. And I believe our citizens wouldn't think that way if the two-party system was miraculously abolished, but let's leave politics alone for a while. Instead, let's expose my inner hippiness when I state the following, but it is true. Our bodies are water, nutrients, and energy that come from plants, animals, the earth, and the sun. Our iron and calcium come from the earth. Our proteins and carbohydrates come from the web of life we consume. Yet we are terrified about rejoining the earth. And similarly, if you believe, like many people do, that we go to heaven, there seems to be just as much fear among those people I meet about going there as well. It's an observation about our survival instinct that needs to be respected when considering end-of-life issues. Whether or not those fears are logical, they are definitely there in most of us. There's not much more I have to say about that. It just is what it is. Now, one reason I wish Americans would pay attention to end-of-life issues is that it has a huge financial impact. The Washington Post on February 9th, 2005, had an interesting passage worth quoting on page 823, stating, The American healthcare system financially ruins many of its citizens who have a serious or terminal illness. Half of all bankruptcies in the United States are filed because of illness. Three-quarters of those people actually have health insurance. But... Finances and economics is only one factor, and as facts also show, some of our end-of-life standards of care also has a way of causing severe physical discomfort needlessly. Some end-of-life care standards are what I term the other face of murder, which is why I named my book that title, meaning we often not only shorten lives, but also injure people with some of our standards of practice. And I will defend that point soon, probably in the next podcast. One more point that I must make before I move forward with this topic. End-of-life care simply is not the same as care for the chronically disabled who are not dying. I don't see why Down syndrome, paraplegia, or any physical or mental disability has anything to do with what I am talking about today and disagree with people who try and move end-of-life debates in that direction. If the choice is utilizing comfort care instead of immense interventions with minimal benefit that are super expensive, I don't think it disregards somebody's humanity to advocate for comfort if the situation is terminal. Yes, we often become disabled as we near death, and disabled people also die. But those of us who support rational rationing often get sideswiped by some bozo saying we also want to kill off the disabled or some other nonsense. They twist arguments to cause fear. I won't allow people to question my genuine compassion and desire to help the disabled, just as I won't let other people question my patriotism because I, like a candidate, you abhor. So please don't send me ill-considered emails that I want to dispose of the handicapped or your grandparents because they no longer serve my needs. It's offensive and you don't need to go there. You can disagree with me utilizing intelligent reasoning that I will listen to and respect 
much more than an attempt at manipulation with low blows. And I will be the first to admit that my own thoughts on end-of-life care have been constantly evolving over this past decade when I've been a physician and probably will continue to evolve. So now that I have been honest about my opinions based on both natural disposition and acquired knowledge about end-of-life care, perhaps I can share some more facts we do know about the end-of-life. And one of those important facts is that there is a miscommunication happening. It is the first step we must overcome to make things better. The New England Journal of Medicine on May 3, 2012, on page 1656, explains this point, saying, A study found that nearly a quarter of the time, patients and physicians who had engaged in an end-of-life discussion had different interpretations of the agreed-on conclusions regarding the direction of care. And that's the end of the quote. Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. So when I come back with the next podcast, let's try and learn some additional data we can share with patients and our colleagues to try and limit the miscommunication. You have been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Parat.